With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. And we're in this meeting and the head of Hilton stood up and he said, I'm not taking my advertising budget and giving it to you guys so that you can advertise your hotels at my demise and I'm not having any part of it. And I stood up after that and I said, I can't believe what I just heard. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. That was Don recalling the struggle of keeping family-owned businesses alive under the shadow of multi-million dollar hotel chains. And we wanted to look at this industry, hospitality in particular, to understand one of its unique subcultures. Today, we are talking to Don Martin and Cassandra Hazen, founders of California Association of Boutique Breakfast Inns, better known as Cabby. This organization ensures these beautiful, authentic hospitality experiences can continue to exist and thrive. But before Don and Cassandra built Cabby from the ground up, Don was involved with a different kind of project, remodeling the rundown Parks Mansion. I'm Homer Donald Marty. I'm a business person that grew up on the Monterey Peninsula and 87 years old. I'm still having a great time. Don, can you tell me about how you stumbled upon the Park Mansion, which is where we're staying now, now under a different name, the Martin Inn. But yeah, when did you first lay eyes on the Park Mansion? Um, my father was the circulation manager for the Monterey Herald. I was the guy who was relief for any kid who got sick until I ended up substituting. So over the years, I'd been in almost every building that was built prior to World War II. I'd never been in this building, which is the largest building in the city. And I was walking along in front of the building and saw that it was for sale. And I said to myself, gee, I'd never seen that building. I want to go in and see what in the world it looked like. So I went in and in almost each room that I went to, I said, oh, my God. And uh, it was in the interior was in just terrible condition. So like you saw this, this mansion that was built in what, like 1899, right? So a lot of history and you saw that it was somewhat in disarray. Why did you want to go through like purchasing it? Like what possessed you to do that if it was in such bad condition? I looked all around the place and was kind of disgusted about it. <laughs> and, but I went back and told my dad, I said, Hey, I just went in that park mansion down the street. I've never been in. And he said, well, neither have I. I said, let's go back down there. I said, you don't want to look at it. And he said, no, we got to look at it. We spent some time going around it. And when we're all through, he says, I think it's a good investment. Completely different kind of angle than I did. Really? 
a good investment. Yeah. Something as as run down as, as it was. And and I said, it's too much work, Dad. I I'm just in the process of moving from Los Angeles back up here. You know, I, I just can't handle anymore. Yeah. He said, well, just go back. And he says, I'll look at it and we'll see what we can do. He called me in the middle of the week. He said, you got to come back up. I said, what for? He says, well, there are parts of it we couldn't see because they were rented out. And I've talked to him about price and they need to sell it. It was the buy of the century. When you look at real estate and you can buy it and be able to rent out a small portion of it and pay the mortgage on it, it's a gift. I said, Dad, you're right. Hey, I said, it's a mess. Okay, but we'll do it. How did you start actually building it out and renovating it? August of 72. I'd quit my job in Los Angeles and I'd shut down my consulting business. I hired four guys and a truck and they came in and started ripping things out and cleaning things out. It just, every place you turned was a mess. I tried to restore it as a family home. So I was working all the time, spending all my money, trying to fix it up and make it nice, you know? And I finally got tired. Yeah, I just said, I really don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to spend my money this way. So we looked at all the different kind of uses that you could have for the property. And it just seemed like the bed and breakfast was the best answer. When did you open the bed and breakfast finally? We opened the bed and breakfast in August of 84. First thing I did is hire an architect. I wanted to see how many, how many rooms we could get, what kinds of things we had to do with it. I'd stayed in a lot of hotels as a, as a consultant around the country. I'd stayed in a lot of bed and breakfast, and I knew what they needed to have, and you know, it wasn't here. The house was built as a family home structure, so you to get from one room to another, in many cases, you had to walk through the room. And so you're walking through somebody else's bedroom to get to your bedroom. Everything was focused on trying to recreate the environment of a very wealthy person's home and uh, try to treat our guests as though they were the personally invited guests of the wealthy party. The architect estimated that it would take a million dollars to to redo it the way we wanted to do it. We interviewed 10 different building contractors. I spent two and a half years with the architect designing what we needed to have. We hired uh, the contractor that had had the most experience with historic homes. And after three weeks that he was here, we knew we'd made a mistake. And I went to him and I said, you know, this isn't working. I think you know it's not working. You're three weeks into this project and you're two weeks behind. And you signed an agreement that said, if you finish early, you get a thousand dollars per day early bonus. If you finish late, you're going to pay a thousand bucks for every day it's not finished. And he says, "Yeah, I can't afford that." I said, "Okay, then what I want you to do is I want you to leave your contractor's license here and your employees here, and you continue to be the contractor of record, but you don't have anything to do with what goes on here, and you're no longer financially responsible for it." 
So his lawyer and my, he didn't want to do it at all, but his lawyer and my lawyer sat down and my lawyer said, I can't believe my client's doing this. You owe him all of this and he could easily own all your estate in Carmel Valley and your business. And I said, yeah, that's true, but I don't want his business. I want this building and I want it done right. So he agreed. So you've remodel the house. I guess I want to get to the part where it starts functioning and when you start realizing that you want to network with other bed and breakfast owners. You know, after you've finished the building and, and you're operating a business, you're working with other bed and breakfast, you're working with other hotels, and you're working with the hospitality industry. And uh, the bed and breakfast industry really did not have anybody that represented it very well. It had a group in Northern California. The president of that group uh, said, I'm not going to do it anymore. He said, I want to be in the bed and breakfast business. I don't want to be in the association business. The group in Southern California didn't want to have anything to do with us in Northern California. They didn't think very highly of us. It was a smaller group. It was about 30 people, 30 RINs in Southern California and about 75 in Northern California. And what value was this organization providing to the bed and breakfast owners? Why was it important for you or anyone to be part of one of these organizations? Workers' compensation was 15% of the payroll. That's a ridiculous kind of figure. I mean, you can't operate a business in a community and pay 15% on workers' compensation. The state said, okay, if you're gonna cook in the building, you gotta have a commercial kitchen. And you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. It just goes on and on. Right, so there's a bunch of regulations that are being put on these businesses. Yeah, if you wanted a beverage permit, it was almost incredible difficulty to get one. And so if you band together, then it makes it easier to circumnavigate some of those regulations. You can talk with the United Voice and you can explain to the legislators what the problem is. And so they were having their conference here in Monterey and the president came to me and he said, I'm not going to run for office. What do you say to him? What I told him, and I said, well, I think we need it really badly, but we need to make it pay for itself. That is, we have to have enough members to be able to pay for professional staff. And he said, yeah, but we don't have that. And I said, well, if you don't run and you dissolve the organization and you tell the organization that I'll put together a brand new organization that has none of the connections with the past at all, and we'll hire somebody to run it professionally. And because I think we can get 150 members, which is what my business mind said, that would pay for professional staff. Okay, so you have this idea in your mind. And now, Cassandra, I kind of want to go towards you now um, and understanding how you started trending towards maybe becoming involved in this organization as well. Well, I was actually involved at that conference, at their very conference, because um, the year before I had visited a bed and breakfast, I had a marketing company where I did uh, trade shows and um, corporate events. And after a show, I needed a break and I went to a bed and breakfast. Back then, all the innkeepers 
felt that people came to the inn to see them. And so they were, she, she was very, you know, engaging at the breakfast. What do you do? And la, la, la. And I said, I'm an events planner. I do. And she said, oh, we could use someone like you. So, and I thought to myself, aha, I, I could do some pro bono work here and get free room nights. Why, why was that worth your time? It's not hard for me to do that kind of work. And, you know, living in corporate world, you want to get out of the corporate world. So staying at bed and breakfasts and get to know that world was uh, appealing to me. It turned out to be just the opposite. It was so much work because <laughs> of the disorganization of what a volunteer-based organization is and extremely dysfunctional. The money that we had collected to pay for the conference, they had used to pay for these books, these travel books that they had created the year before, and they didn't have enough money to pay the bill. So when it came time to pay the hotel bill, there was no money. Oh, yeah, it was a disaster, but um, very clever. Um, the then president, who was resigning, <laughs> went and talked to the, the uh, manager at the hotel and agreed to do a payment plan. And by God, they let him. I couldn't even believe it. Um, so then the, in the meetings, the conversation started. Well, we, he said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And, and um, you guys can take it if you want to. But Don was in the back of the room and, and everyone liked him um, and knew that he had this organizational talent about him. Why was he popular within the group? Why did everyone like him? Well, because he was, he didn't talk. There was no um, um, fluff about him. But when he talked, when he said something, it was spot on. I'll do it for 18 months. Uh, we'll dissolve this organization. We'll start anew and I've got a plan and I'll do it. And he points to me if she does it. And I went, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I got another passionate person in the room. That, now what am I going to do? And so I, I said, I would do it. Uh, my conditions were that we would become a state organization and we would be involved with the uh, Department of Tur Tourism. I just figured I'll help build this organization and then I'll get to do the conference, which is what I do. I do events. Um, and then when I got into it, I realized I, I got to do the whole thing. So what was your goal? Like when you were, you, you were trying to get like all these people, but do you have like a number in mind of like, okay, this is what it will be when the organization is profitable? Uh, well, I think gone through at 150, a hundred would make it serious. 150, I could start being paid. Fast forward, when I left, there were 488, almost 500 wow. uh, members. When you were going and, and doing this, you know, travel dog and pony show, uh, what were you telling these, these innkeepers? Like what was the sell? What was the pitch? you know, value and numbers. And so it was really just coming together as a group uh, of like mind and becoming an industry as opposed to just, you know, out there on your own. And a lot of people wanted that. A lot of people wanted that camaraderie. That's why the conferences were so successful. They come together to learn and to be together and share information and sit at the table with another innkeeper and say, God, I got this guest that did this. And, you know, you had, you know, and so it was re really um, powerful. Yeah, you start out getting little pieces. And then as each one of the pieces, it's like a brick. You're just building your foundation and then as you get enough bricks, people begin to pay attention. And then you, when you get a fascia, they begin to say, hey, 
um, you know, I got to be a part of this. If I'm not a part of this, then I'm not really running my business as well as I could. And, and I'm not enjoying it as much as I could. You're doing so much pro bono work. When, when does it feel like uh, it was too much? Oh, never, never, never. Because, um, you know, I, I knew it would work and, and I ended up making enough money to, to support myself and the staff. But, you know, the contract that, that Don uh, created with me was an open-ended contract. But, so, you know, as the membership grew, I got, you know, I think first I was make, we'll give you $500. Great, $500, that'd pay for my gas. And then, then it went up to a thousand, you know, and then each time I had a benchmark of membership, I got another $500. Well, also we got creative with, if I created the programs that offered to the membership, then I got, I would take commissions from the programs. Uh, every new member came in, there was an application fee. Well, I got that application fee. So we kind of built a contract that that generated a, a little bit of a cash flow. And when we got a critical mass of membership, I, you know, I was making uh, good money. I was making enough money that I stopped doing some other events um, because it was too much work. I couldn't do the events and, and cabbie. And so I, I left the event world and only did cabbie for maybe five years. In 94, you become part of the tourism of Sacramento, right? I think so, yeah. And did that feel like uh, a big moment for you guys? I thought, thought we'd arrived. I'm sitting at uh, a conference table with all the big hotels, the Marriott's and the Hyatt's, to represent our industry. You know, and I went in there like I was running one big organization. They used to say, we'd see you coming. They go, there comes that little Sandy LaRufa. That was my name. And there she is. She's like running a big organization of all those little bed and breakfasts. But they, they were so proud of me that I didn't know I had a small organization. I was bigger in life. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, and what were you thinking at that time? Success just brought more success than brought more success until all of a sudden it was not enough basically for Sandy. Hmm. Well, I got married, remember? I got yeah. married and, and and then I needed to retire. The life I married into wouldn't, I didn't have time to do it anymore. So, and that's when the merger happened. Yeah, so can you talk about that merger? Donna and I spent a lot of time with Jim Abrams who ran the California lodging industry, uh, uh, CHNLA. We always uh, flirted with merging with them, but we weren't ready. But I remember we were at a conference when the time was right. And I looked at Don, I said, now's the time. And, and I said, should I call Jim? And we were in San Diego, I think it was. And, and Don said, yeah, I called Jim. And he was there in the afternoon and we sat down and the negotiations started. I sat in a meeting in Los Angeles of the major hotel, Hilton and Marriott, the state had a budget of $9 million that they'd set aside for hospitality promotion, but it wasn't enough. The other states, Las Vegas, for instance, was spending $40 million a year, and so they, they couldn't compete. So what they needed was some kind of 
taxing setup. The state had a system to be able to do that, but the hospitality members had to vote to agree to it. And we're in this meeting and the head of of Hilton stood up and he said, I'm not taking my advertising budget and giving it to you guys so that you can advertise your hotels at my demise. I'm not having any part of this. I stood up after that and I said, I can't believe what I just heard. Your big organization are not willing to take a part of your advertising dollar and put it in a pot for everybody. We've already said we're going to do it. We've already guaranteed the money to you to do that. I I can't believe that you can be so short-sighted, but I can tell you, we look at the world in a big way and we know we want to be a part of it and we think you need to be a part of it too. Well, the meeting broke up at that and they were pretty unhappy. The next day, they said, okay, we'll do it. There were a whole series of things like that that changed the whole process of CHLA, the relationships with the state government, the relationships with each other in terms of doing joint promotion. It was a period in which monstrous changes took place, changes that you would have never believed. I kind of want to go towards where Cabby is today, some of the things that that you and Cassandra are most proud of. I think it's in particularly good shape. It's expanded its horizon in terms of who's a member anymore. It used to be just the little small bed and breakfasts. Now it it includes a number of specialty hotels. And and so if you ask CHLA, they're stronger than they've ever been. I just think the fact that it still exists speaks loudly as to the belief why we started it to begin with. Had it gone away when I left or when Don uh, was no longer involved, then I would have felt like we wasted our time, but we didn't. We gave birth to, to an organization that still exists today that continues to grow and expand in the current, um, like it, expanding into the new markets with the designer hotels. So it's keeping up with the times. Between March 2020 and March 2022, cabbie membership increased by 15%, which, which is huge, especially, you know, seeing that we went through a pandemic and yet your membership is still increasing. Yeah, that's amazing. And if you were to give like, I guess, like one piece of advice to someone who was uh, thinking about opening up a bed and breakfast or an inn, what piece of advice do you think that would be? Don, I'm going to let you take that one. Everything's an opportunity. Everything. It may look like a mess and it may look like you're jumping into the pool of sharks, but it's an opportunity to do something with it. And too often times, all we see is the chart and we don't see the beautiful pool of water that's there. It could be used effectively in some kind of way. The, the best management processes see where they are, they look to where they could be, and they ask themselves, how do I get there? Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. 
If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Will, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.